You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. Who do you think that Christianity is for? Brennan Manning was in a church outside Minneapolis preaching to several hundred believers on an October afternoon. It was a three-hour seminar, and for the first hour, he talked about one thing, and that was grace. And for the second hour, he talked about one thing, and that was also grace. And you can imagine what he talked about for the third hour. And after slipping out the side door, he heard the pastor turn to his associate and say, that guy didn't say one thing about what we're supposed to do. Who do you think Christianity is for? We all have people who we believe deserve certain things in life, and we know people who we believe do not deserve certain things in life. And our sense of morality gets upended when we see a judge acquit a guilty criminal and instead offer leniency, or when a parent not only shows restraint when a child acts out, but also throws out the welcome mat of grace. Or even when those who have squandered their life away receive an affection that could only be described as gracious love to those they have specifically wounded. I think of the story of Martin Luther King Jr., who was a man committed to the lifestyle of nonviolence. And standing on stage one day, he was brutally assaulted and punched by a white supremacist. And not only did he not fight back, he pleaded with the authorities not to press charges, but instead said, please bring the man to me. We must have a conversation. Even the act of non-retaliation is an act of divine grace. And there is something that seems off in our spirit when we see and witness grace because our culture is baked in a system of ungrace, right? There is no free lunch. You get what you deserve. You want money, work for it. You want love, earn it. Do unto others before they do unto you. Watch out for welfare lines and cardboard signs. Give people what they deserve, but not a penny more. Even as early as kindergarten, we are tested and evaluated and receive our tests back with red X's over the incorrect answers. We are slotted based on our IQ and our merit. There are tracks for advanced on grade level and behind, and it's all about moving up. And of course, these types of scaffolding in the classroom prepare us for the real world where we grow up and play one giant game of King of the Hill. Everything is about the top. Pay raises and bonuses come after someone performs well, not after they fail. So I ask, who do you think Christianity is for? Lewis Smedes is a professor of psychology at Fuller, and his book is entitled Shame and Grace. And he says this guilt was not my problem as I felt it. What I felt most was a gob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God accepted me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, would never let me go, even if he was not impressed with what he had on his hands. He goes on to say there are three common sources of shame, secular culture, graceless religion, and unaccepting parents. Secular culture tells us to feel good, look good, and make good. Graceless religion tells us we must follow the rules, and failure brings eternal rejection. And unaccepting parents, the aren't you ashamed of yourself types, convince us 
that we will never meet their approval. So, who do you think Christianity is for? Is it for those who deserve it? And who deserves it? Who decides who receives grace and who receives retribution? Who decides where the line is? And when do you switch over from the one who suffers innocently as a victim to one who sins knowingly as a human? Who makes that call? And who has the authority to make such a call? The God of the universe is the God of the unbelievable. And I do not mean unbelievable acts of supernatural power. I mean unbelievable miracles of surprising love. Karl Barth says that miracles break the physical laws of the universe, but grace breaks the moral ones. Grace, the thing we are continually surprised by and somewhat allergic to. We think that we have trouble apologizing to people because we feel justified in what we've done, but I think we struggle apologizing because we are convinced that a stern I told you so is on the other side instead of the Niagara Falls of grace. The president of Denver Seminary says, the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. John 15 is found in a very famous block of scripture known as the Upper Room Discourse. These are the last hours Jesus has on earth with his disciples. And during this very intimate setting with the people who followed him for at least three years, Jesus compares himself to something, a vine. And over the last two months, we have looked at some of the I am statements that Jesus says, and we have traced some of the biblical themes from the Old Testament to Jesus. And this afternoon is a combination of factors. We're going to look at a garden, a vine, and then an encouragement and a challenge. So here we go. In Genesis 1... God created the world to live in the world. And on the seventh day of creation, God takes up his rest and rule as his presence fills the earth. In many ways, the created world was intended to be God's dwelling place, his home. And so in Genesis 2, we double-click on creation and learn that God plants a garden in Eden, actually in the east, and that is where he put humanity. Now, in Hebrew, Eden means delight. This is where God delighted, took joy, desired, and longed to be in the presence of his created world. Now, this garden was less like your hip garden that you have in your backyard and more like an ancient Yosemite, all right? This place is flowing with beauty and wonder, harmony, creativity, springs and trees and fountains and plants and animals of all kinds. The garden was the place that God had made his home. And once Adam and Eve rebel against God and turn to other lesser loves, they are expelled by God's presence from the garden that is now guarded by cherubim, which can be described as heavenly beings who directly attend or bless God. And they now enter the wasteland, the graveyard, filled with all the challenging and gross things we know, violence, lust, greed, envy, theft, rage. The presence of God is separated from the people of God. Skip ahead. We know that God chooses Abram, a nomad from nowhere, and says, I will make a great nation out of you. I will give you a people, a place, and I will bless you. And so God multiplies, multiplies the population of Abraham, and people spring up so much so that Egypt, the nation 
that they had lived in for a while seems threatened by Israel, and so they enslave them. God saves the people of Israel and undercuts Pharaoh and the entire nation by sending a litany of plagues, and Israel is shot out of Egypt like a vine across the Red Sea destined for the Promised Land. In Exodus 15, 17, we read, You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And then in Psalm 88, we get, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The intent of God's design is for the world. For the world is that he would create it and then live among the people. And we have turned that blessing into a curse, desiring lesser loves. But God, who is solely intent on being in relationship with his people, took a man, made him into a nation, and made that nation to be a live vine that would bear fruit and remind the world of a past and future garden. And so in the midst of Israel being saved from the Egyptian rule, God would continue to remind the people that he wanted to be near them. So fast forward to the construction of the temple, a place, by the way, that would reflect the garden. It would be a place on earth, a symbol where the presence of God would live. If you know anything about the temple, you know it was not built with fierce statutes that were meant to scare you into submission. It was actually built like a garden. Why? Well, for a couple reasons, but one of which is because we know that human beings do not love what they are afraid of, even if they comply to external behaviors. They love what is lovely, what is beautiful. So the temple is modeled actually after Eden. Consider this. It's made of cedar trees, and it's guarded by cherubim. The doors of the sanctuary are made of olive wood. The bronze pillars are decorated with pomegranates and lilies. The panels are set with ox and lions, and like the garden, you find yourself surrounded by fresh water in the temple. There is a tree-shaped lampstand outside the Holy of Holies, and ten other lampstands called the menorah that symbolize the tree of life in the garden. The priest that would walk in experienced delight because God was there, as was represented the creation that he made. The temple was his home. So we get the description of a garden where God dwells in his created world in Genesis 1 and 2. Then we get a picture of a garden-like temple where God also dwells with his people. And we get a picture of a vine, the people of Israel, who are meant to tell the story of the God of the garden, Yahweh. But as we know, the cultures and nations surrounding Israel begin to affect and infect Israel. Israel takes up worshiping other gods. They begin to take advantage of those who are less fortunate than they are, and they begin to mirror the nations instead of distinguishing themselves from them. And so we get this image in Isaiah 5 of a vineyard, and this is actually the song of Yahweh. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hoed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. 
It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, and for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel failed. And God sends the nations around Israel to overtake them. It failed to model what it means to be plucked out of the world for divine purposes and mirror the image of God to the world. But, as we know, this is not that surprising because we feel the same tension. The surprise comes when there enters a better Israel, the true vine, the one who has come from nothing and yet tells us how the kingdom will grow. The one who says that I am so committed to living among you that I will become one of you. And the one who took on flesh and is the embodiment of grace. The one who is light breaking into the darkness. The one who dwelt among us. Which, by the way, in John 1, where you see that dwelt among us, it literally means pitch his tent. Or in the Old Testament, tabernacled or templed among you. And this man, Jesus, who is the true and better Israel, will lament his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. And will be resurrected by God and mistaken, by the way, or maybe not mistaken, for a gardener by Mary when she sees him after he's resurrected. And that Jesus who was raised from the dead will ultimately give us his spirit who will live in us and we will become that tabernacle. We will become the embodiment of the first garden and the forthcoming of the future garden. This is Ephesians three seventeen. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, that it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. God is the gardener. And God's world is being turned back into a garden. And Jesus is the vine that is growing in the garden and we are his branches. This is John 15. So here is our encouragement. Our home is in God. Most of us believe this intellectually, but refuse it functionally. Meaning we know the scriptures speak of God as our refuge and shelter. Most of us affirm the belief that God is our sustainer. But when it comes to our life, every inch of spiritual maturity and desire to grow comes first from us. That is how we think and that is how we live. I am in charge of my life. I am in control of my life. I am responsible for my spiritual growth. I must grow spiritually. But who are you in this picture? You are a branch. We collectively are a branch. And what is the primary purpose of a branch? It is to receive. You are not the gardener God is. Jesus even says it here, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser, or as we know, gardener. We do not bring rain, sun, heat, or wind. We are a branch, a tiny little branch. And branches receive. They open themselves up to the nutrients that allow them to bear fruit. Christianity is not a to-do list of what you must do. It is a lifestyle of receiving what God has done for you primarily, the love of God, applied, manifested in Jesus, applied by the Holy Spirit to your life. Believing and thus receiving the love of God 
The grace of God as our home is the most difficult thing you will ever do. We have not yet come to know and believe the love God has for us. We want the list. Just give me my list. What must I do? And I will be on my way. Jesus says, remain in me. Live, walk, make your home, receive my affection, trust me, learn from me, abide in my love, remain in my love. One of the passages that is so striking is when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount and he says to Matt in Matthew 7, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that we never knew God. It says God never knew us. Here is our issue. We do not make ourselves known to God. Our stubborn refusal to open up to God is preventing us from experiencing freedom in God and intimacy with God. We much prefer the lifestyle of Ananias and Sapphira. We are comfortable, pretty comfortable actually, misrepresenting ourselves before God and one another. And why? Why? Because we still live under the lie that Christianity is not really about grace. It's not really about grace. At the bottom, we believe it's about appearance, perception, good works, reputation, perhaps. But grace? I'm not convinced I can get behind that. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 3, Already you are clean because of the word I spoke to you. And he's speaking of what he did earlier in the evening when he took their feet and washed them. You no longer come to me cleaned up. I have come to clean you up. You come to me as someone who is already clean. Not only are you pardoned, but you are his. Home is not a heavenly mansion in the afterlife, but a safe place right in the midst of our anxious world. I suppose there is no reason to really abide or remain or to reorient ourselves to God if the world is going so well. But we all know the reality. It's not going as well as we have convinced ourselves or as well as we put off. Jesus is, as T.S. Eliot puts it, the still point of a turning world. To find your home in Jesus is what it means to receive grace. That is the encouragement. God welcomes broken people into his loving presence. He is the constant in a world of shifts. If that is not the message of Christianity that we are giving to the world, we have no message for them. Ours is a cleaned up version of what they're already pitching. Now, the challenge. Do not spurn the difficulties. We are under the impression as Christians living in a secularized, self-help society that bearing fruit, which is what Jesus is talking about here, is going to feel good. That is a lie. It is actually the opposite. (laughs) Bearing fruit and being pruned and chipped away rarely feels good. God only grows you up in the process of dying. 
Maturing as a follower of Jesus has little to nothing to do with how you feel and much more to do with where you turn when you feel all the things. Whether it is the specific suffering in a fallen world that you are experiencing or situations that are exposing sinful patterns, behaviors, attitudes, or a combination of the two, do not turn away from this moment. Every single moment is an invitation by God to return to God. Despite your sin and your failure and your regret and your poor choices and your bitterness and your inability to reckon with the brokenness of the world, God has said, I am coming for you. And I think for a lot of us, it's just easier to throw our hands up and say, nope, I don't believe that. It's too difficult to believe because it's too painful to look at what's happening in the mirror. And thus the grave temptation is to think and feel like there is no hope. Satan has weapons at his disposal to take you out. And they are less, quite frankly, like massive catastrophes and tragic deaths and more like small, subtle lies, like hopelessness. Jesus gives Satan the name, the father of lies. And one of the more powerful lies is hopelessness. Hopelessness is not God's name. Futility is not God's work. Anything in our lives that we do not feel hopeful about is under the influence of a lie. Anything in our lives that we do not feel hopeful about is under the influence of a lie. We acknowledge that God works sometimes, but we have not yet come to believe that God would work in blank. In this situation, in my family, in that person, in this life, The moments and seasons where we feel the most defeated and pain is living in our body, God is doing some serious surgery on us. And where we feel tired and depleted, God is removing something or exposing something or bringing something to light. And that can be very, very painful. But if that is happening to you, God, it is proof. It is proof that God is committed to you. His glory in your life. How is God glorified? How does God receive honor in the world? How does the world know that we belong to God? We remain His love, desiring to follow the life He has for us and thus producing fruit, proof that we are His. Here is the hard news. Fruit is not born in your life unless the branch gets cut. This is how it works. If you want a vineyard to produce good grapes for good wine, you trim back the branches more frequently than you would like. And without cutting the branch, it gets out of control. It grows, actually. It does grow. It just grows without fruit. It does not receive the nutrients of grace and stubbornly refuses to be watered by God. It is actually God's kindness to you that he cuts you it's how we grow up and here's the really good news god is more interested in you bearing fruit than you are god is so committed to you becoming like him that he will go to great lengths to weed out all the stuff that is going on in here and his stubborn love is greater than your stubborn refusal to receive it 
Do not spurn the moment. Do not waste the crisis. Do not ignore or drown out or medicate the challenge. It is the megaphone God is using to draw you further up and further in. It is not sin that will keep you from God. It is your refusal to acknowledge it. If it were sin that kept us from God, we'd all be doomed. It is a gift that God would take his steady hand and his kind scalpel and open you up. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. At times, it's downright infuriating. And unlike physical surgery, we don't have anesthesia that knocks us out for a couple of hours while they do the hard stuff. We are wide awake. And if you're wide awake during surgery, the only logical reaction your body has is to scream. But God would much prefer your honest screaming than he would you pretending to ignore the gaping, gushing wound. What are Jesus' words to them after he tells them they're getting cut? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. A couple weeks back, I was talking to someone, and I could adamantly tell they were not listening. They were not paying attention. They really didn't care what I had to say. And I genuinely was about to lose my ever-loving mind. My heart rate was up. I was getting shorter in my tone. My frustration was increasing. I think I even said something that I later had to apologize for. And as my patience is wearing thin and I'm losing all control over my tongue, I just get this gentle, non-audible sense of God saying, hang in there. Hang in there. And for the next 28 minutes, it took everything in me not to flip this person over. And then it was a moment of clarity. I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't do it. And God was so kind to remind me of John 15. Remain in my love. It is my love, not yours. It is my power, not yours. It is, your, it is my work, not yours. What I am doing right here in this situation is what it means to enter my story. And my impatience and propensity to anger was getting absolutely blown up. But God was doing something in that person's life. Because after 28 minutes of me hanging in there, the conversation began to change as did their tone. And God was doing something between us. And God was doing something in my spirit. He said, I, I, again, it was not audible, but I sensed God saying, you are not in control. Give it up. Give it up. If sin and suffering are acutely a part of your life right now, if you deeply feel the effects of the fall, take great confidence. God is turning your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I did an exercise this week where I listed out everyone in our church. And there are roughly 20 people that I know of who have a significant pain point in their life or are going through significant life transitions and are asking themselves one question, this question at one level or another, and that is, where is God in this? And I just want to give you a pastoral exhortation. 
He has not left you. He is not wondering if you're going to make it out okay. He isn't anxious or fearful or embarrassed of you. His heart is so tender toward you. His mercy is so great toward you. He deals so gently with bruised reeds. He has not given up. In fact, his love is as fierce as it ever was. He is not numb to your pain, dismissive of your sin. It's actually the fact that relationship with him exists that allows you to come to him absolutely spent and receive the grace of a loving dad. You just got to open yourself up to him. Most of you probably don't know this. Um, and some of you may or may not be surprised. I don't know. But I am a sucker for America's Got Talent. Love America's Got Talent. Absolutely love it. Um, it's a cheesy, extremely cheesy reality TV show uh, that highlights people doing various acts. And actually this week I was in my room. It was like 9 o'clock at night and like already spent from a really long day. And I'm <laughs> Sarah comes in and she's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like crying. Uh, and she's like, <laughs> I said, I just watched the golden buzzers. <laughs> and she's like, you're so weird. Uh, which, by the way, the golden buzzers are like when you skip, when you do so well that the judges give you the golden buzzer that makes you skip the, comp or skip the competition and go directly to the live show in Las Vegas. Uh, and so they're always told with like tragedy is involved in the story and they're like unbelievable acts of like singing or dancing or something. So anyway, um, none of you probably care about that, but the side note, personal side note, your pastor watches AGT. Um, but last year, there was a woman on it named Jane, Jane Marzuski, and, but she went by a stage name called Nightbirding. And she was 30 years old, she was diagnosed with cancer, had a 2% chance of survival, uh, and she ended up actually passing away last year. Before she died, though, she wrote something that I've revisited countless times because it's one of the most powerful pieces of prose that I have ever read, and it feels very relevant right now. So here's what some of it says. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll just say I never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, and demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to let me in himself. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. 
Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, and the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I am praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wonder, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There is mercy here somewhere, but what is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, and my mother's crooked hands, and the blanket my friend left for me, and the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look, lo look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him look lower, God is on the bathroom floor. If you can't see him look lower, he can never say, that he did not know me. You receive grace when you expose yourself to God. So the challenge is to make yourself known to God. God will say, a, God may say a lot of things with us, to us when we see him. But our prayer is that he would not say, I didn't know you. It is the simple and difficult request to get comfortable and reacquainted with grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor with the Lord of hosts, even amidst and almost especially when there is sin and where there is suffering. I want this church to be infused by grace. And the only way we get there is when we get known. And the bathroom floor is really dirty. And God is there. God is there. Let's pray.
Jesus, you, you meet us in the lowest places. Some of which we may have brought upon ourselves. Some of which we may have absolutely nothing to do with. And yet there you are. You're just waiting for us to turn around. Lord, help us be a church that turns around, that finds you, that prays the prayer we started off with, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Have mercy on me. That is our prayer. That we would become known to you. That you would know us, all of us. Especially the stuff we do not like about ourselves. Expose that in us. So we might become more like you by your spirit. A mustard seed at a time. Jesus, hear that prayer. And it is in the name of the one who has come for us, who's dwelling among us right here in this room and in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' holy and precious name. listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.